From Notre Dame Stories, welcome to Office Hours, the show that visits scholars in their workspaces to discuss their research and whatever else we happen to find there. I'm your host, Andy Fuller. In this episode, we drop in on political science professor Christina Wolbrecht. She's co-authored a book called A Century of Votes for Women that looks at how women have used their right to vote in the past century since the 19th Amendment was passed. What we found in the course of our conversation is that it's not easy to paint with broad strokes when describing an electorate as diverse as American women. And what we found on the bookshelf of Christina's office is evidence of one prominent doll maker's evolution on the concept of a female president. But first, we pick up our chat as Christina describes how the idea for the study grew out of a project that focused on the early days of women's suffrage. When we were researching women in the 20s and 30s, there was a lot of disconnect between the very confident claims of scholars and politicians about how women voted Mm. and what we found out about how women actually voted. You can kind of understand that in the 20s and 30s. They didn't have much data to go on. What struck us is even today, when we have so much more opportunity to observe and understand women voters, there's still, frankly, a disconnect between a lot of the rhetoric around women voters and how women actually act and behave as voters. It's interesting that you say that because one of the first things uh, that struck me when I read Chapter 1 was, uh, you know, you say in, in, the 19, in 1920, um, people assumed women would vote along certain issues. So um, equal pay being one of them. Uh, and then issues related to their role as mothers. Sounds um, really familiar, doesn't exactly. it? Exactly. <laughs> it struck me like, where have I heard that before? It's like, oh, yeah, maybe just four years ago and, and, even, and even today. So, and yet, w- the life of a woman has changed quite a bit since 1920. So we still seem to be reading from the same script, but is that right, <laughs> I, I guess? So you've actually absolutely put your your finger right on uh, one of the key dynamics I think that we want to emphasize in the book is there there may be no period in history in which women's lives have changed as dramatically uh, as the last hundred years uh, and we have part of what we do in the book is sort of talk about changing fertility and marriage and and work and all those sorts of things but at the same time while certainly the details change a little we use a lot of the same concepts to try to understand women voters. And part of that is sort of inherent to the task. If you want to say, well, are women voters different? You start with, well, how are women different? Mm. Um, And the answer seems to be, well, they're mothers in particular. So we also, you know, in the 20s, it would have been uh, child labor and maternity and infant health sort of bills. And today it's soccer moms and, you know, talking about education and healthcare and the things that we just inherently, if you asked anybody, well, well, of course women care more about these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. But the underlying assumption there, of course, is that women's gender determines their vote choice more than lots of other aspects of their identity or their interests, that it that they wouldn't be motivated by the state of the economy or uh, their Concerns about um, war and peace, those sorts of, those sorts of issues. 
And we saw that, I think, most strongly in 2016, right? So this incredibly unique election, we've got the first woman nominee, we've got Donald Trump and the things that he has said and been accused of. And lots of smart people were saying it's going to be a giant gender gap. And the the underlying argument there is, of course, women will be more upset about these sorts of issues like sexual assault and and uh, insulting women, which, frankly, I think is a little insulting to men, as if they wouldn't <laughs> care about those sorts of issues. Um, but that's really not what we saw in 2016. Uh, and that's because women, many women care about those things, as do many men, frankly, mm-hmm. when we start mm-hmm. to talk about things like abortion and equal pay. But it's not the only thing that they care about. When you started to build on this project from um, the 1920s and 30s and then looking at and expanding the data, did you expect certain themes to really kind of jump out at you with neon arrows? Uh, expect, expect certain themes to emerge um, as, you, as you looked at the data? So one of the things we're doing in this book um, is absolutely building on an amazing tradition of scholarship about women as voters. Mm. Um, and so in that sense, there are times when I when I want to say, when, when someone comes up to me, we did an interview recently and said, I cannot believe that women were, were more Republican than men in the 40s and 50s. That's actually not a surprise mm-hmm. to scholars of women in politics. That was sort of known. Um, perhaps I have overestimated uh, how very careful attention normal people are paying <laughs> to uh, scholars of women in politics. Uh, and I think that's that's generally can be an issue as a scholar. You think, well, everyone knows this. Well, no, everyone doesn't know this. And part of our goal in this book was to bring more of that scholarship, maybe a little bit closer mm-hmm. to the mass public and journalists, et cetera. I think what surprised us was, again, how some of the claims and assumptions rested on pretty limited empirical evidence. Mm. Um, In the chapter on the 40s and 50s, we take to task in particular um, some of the uh, most respected scholars in our discipline. So this is when scholars first had surveys and were doing these really foundational work on how Americans vote, which, and this is important, shapes the way political scientists and scholars think about voting to this day. Like these are still books that are, you were so lucky enough to go to graduate school in political science. These are books you will read. Mm. And they made really strong claims about women voters that even a, even a cursory glance at the evidence um, suggests that they, that they don't really have the evidence. So it's not that they're necessarily wrong. So one claim was women just vote like their husbands. That may have been true. But they don't really have the evidence to hmm. evaluate that claim. Hmm. There are some themes that do come out, um, and I want to touch on maybe just uh, one or two. And, and you already alluded to one: uh, the shift of women favoring Republican candidates until about 1960, and then maybe 20 or so years later, we see kind of the the pendulum swing the other way to more Democratic uh, candidates. Can you unpack that a, a little bit? What's what's behind that? Do you think? So the first thing to say is that is a pattern we actually see around the world. Mm. So most advanced industrial democracies, to the best that we can tell, when women were first enfranchised, tended to favor center-right parties. Um, In Europe, that was mostly attributed to women's greater religiosity, and so Christian democratic parties, et cetera. 
um, were more attractive to women, uh, parties associated with the Catholic Church and places like Italy. And, and so in that way, that whatever explanation we have is sort of got to be worldwide, right? Part of what's happening when we say um, women are more likely to vote Republican or more likely to vote Democrat is it depends on, right, the, the electorate is dynamic. Who, What do women look like in any particular period? And what do the women who actually have the right to vote look like in any particular period, right? So when we talk about women voters in the 40s and the 50s, we're overwhelmingly talking about white women, mm -hmm. for example, right? Uh, because uh, Jim Crow and um, sort of authoritarianism in the South really kept most black women from being able to vote. That's going to change after 1965. Black women now have some of the highest turnout um, hmm. of any group in the electorate. Can I just stop you <clears throat> right there? Because I, I, I wonder if it's important to clarify maybe a little bit about what the 19th Amendment did and, and did not do. Uh, because in maybe a, almost a third of the country, women did have the right to vote prior to uh, 1920. And then, as you mentioned, in the South, that didn't start in 19, 1920. So, so what the 19th Amendment says is that you are not allowed to discriminate in voting rights on the basis of sex. Mm -hmm. It says nothing about discrimination in voting rights on the basis of other characteristics and race in particular. As people have pointed out, and rightfully so, um, a lot of the white suffrage movement was not particularly sensitive to that issue. They, mm. they um, purposely uh, excluded black women suffragists from events because they didn't want to offend the South. Um, and they, they didn't sort of tie those two together in any particular way. That being said, it's, it's not so much that the 19th Amendment didn't enfranchise women of color. It, it says, because this is the way the Constitution works, you, can't, you cannot uh, deny people the right to vote on the basis of sex. But of course, throughout the South, women were being, uh, black women and black men were being denied the right to vote on the basis of race. What's really interesting about that is, is the complicated politics around it. And so it's absolutely necessary to say that um, black women were systematically denied the right to vote until the 1960s. That's not the same as saying absolutely no black women voted. Hmm. And there are great stories um, and examples of places where in collaboration with black men and with white supporters on their own, et cetera, um, black women overcame really incredible barriers to get the right to, to, to actually um, use their, their right to vote. It is fascinating. I, I think looking at black women voters also points out how interesting the complicated way in which white supremacy was supported in the South. Hmm. So to give one example, um, lots of women... Uh, the 19th Amendment was ratified at the end of August. The election was in November. Lots of states at that point had really long registration deadlines. You had to register six months in advance. So it's actually true in four southern states. No women voted in 1920 because those states said, oh, we're sorry. Mm -hmm. You missed the deadline. Mm -hmm. Lots of other states did the same, but they actually then passed laws and you know made, made accommodations for women. We have sort of really interesting stories coming out of Virginia where they opened up... Uh, uh, registrar's offices, and there was, of course, a separate registrar, registrar for women, for white women and for black women, and they put more registrars behind the desk where white women were registering. So, first of all, much harder than for black women. The lines are longer, mm -hmm. you know, not going to be able to get access to the vote. But if that wasn't enough, 
Then the newspapers took pictures of these long lines of black women waiting to register to vote and ran newspaper stories saying, oh my gosh, all these black women are, are registering to vote. White women, you better make sure you're going to vote. Mm -hmm. we got to counter this threat. It's you know almost explicitly in those words, right? And so the pressures against black women were very real. Prohibitive voter registration laws helped to contribute to very low turnout among women voters in 1920. So much so that many early commentators declared the suffrage movement a failure. But in places where races were closely contested and parties had to mobilize every voter they could, turnout among women was much higher. Still, even as laws became more progressive, turnout overall lagged. Wolbrecht cites a piece of research out just recently that said if a woman came of political age when women were denied the right to vote, it hampered the likelihood that they would use that right the rest of their lives, even after the 19th Amendment was passed. Today, the political landscape has changed, and that's where we'll pick up our conversation after the break. With a Side of Knowledge is a podcast from Notre Dame that embodies a simple guiding principle. Everything's better with brunch. Our show features informal conversations between host Ted Fox, that's me, and all manner of scholars, makers, and professionals from both the university and elsewhere. We record each episode over a meal or coffee, ambient noise and all. You can find With a Side of Knowledge at provost.nd.edu slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. So today, and since 1980, women are more likely to turn out to vote than our men. But that's almost entirely cohort replacement, which is to say, as the older generations that were less likely to vote have, we like to say, exited the electorate, hmm. and newer generations have come in who weren't socialized in the same way, who had more opportunities, their turnout rights have been higher. That's different than the gender gap. So the process by which we get the gender gap was not just, oh, new cohorts, new younger women came in who were more Democratic, and they replaced older women who were more Republican. That shift to women being more Democratic than men, we see across all cohorts. Okay. Let me make one more point about the gender gap. Yeah. It's, the story I just told was women became more Democratic. But actually, the process from the 60s on is that both men and women became less Democratic from this big height in 64, uh, when many, many or most Americans, by far most Americans, voted against Barry Goldwater. Both men and women slowly became more Republican, but men at a much sharper rate. Hmm. And a lot of that Southern realignment. So all those white Southern Democratic men are going to become Republican. So are a lot of white Southern Democratic women, but not nearly as much. So one of the things we try to emphasize in the book is when you say gender gap, you think, okay, Men are normal. That's just the way it's supposed to be. And any difference must be some weird thing women are doing for weird women reasons. When in fact, a lot of the story of the gender gap is a story of the behavior of men and not just women. And that is true of every pattern that we see over time. That doesn't mean that they're not still differences, right? Right. It can be we all swung to the Republican Party, but men more than women. Um, certainly the gender differences... Um, are usually swamped by other differences, uh, particularly race. 
Um, and it, they certainly matter, right? Particularly today when we're in such close electoral competition. So it's, it's sort of hard to keep those two things in one, one's head at the same time, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I would say overwhelmingly, if I wanted to explain how men and women voted, I would start with the same factors for both of them. Mm-hmm. What kind of a household did they grow up in? What kind of partisanship did their family have in? What are their racial and ethnic identities? What is their education, educational attainment, et cetera? Those are going to be the dominant explanations for the political, to the vote choice of both men and women. But that doesn't mean there isn't a little bit of, of sort of little difference there on the margins that makes women about 10 to 15 percent more democratic than mm-hmm. our men. Gender plays a role, just not the central role. Exactly. OK. Um, I wonder if there's more than one uh, campaign strategist out there uh, hoping to get this book and see like this holy grail, this, like this blueprint to winning over the, uh, the women vote in, in 2020. Um, and it, it's not so easy, is it? Yeah. So first of all, uh, they obviously all should buy the book. Um, <laughs> well, yes, that, that goes without, that saying. Goes without yes. saying. And and we'll not win without it. I think that's, <laughs> that's obviously the takeaway that we should get from this. Um, so so sometimes there, there's a there's a tension here um, for us as scholars. So part of my job as a political scientist is not to say what happened in one district in Iowa on Monday. Right. It's to say over time mm. in general, what explains the electorate and, and the, the real challenge for political strategists is a lot of it is baked in. Right. Come November, I'm a I pay a certain amount of attention to politics. I'm a fairly <laughs> knowledgeable person, but I am going to vote the way that we could have predicted I was going to vote when I was 10 years old growing mm. up in my household with my experiences, Interesting. the socialization I'm getting from my family. Some people change, just to say that some people don't stick with the religion of their family. They don't stick with those sorts of right. things. Um, but lots of people don't. And and fundamentally, to explain most of it, I'm going to say it's, it all sort of stays the same. But of course, we have elections. And sometimes one party wins, and sometimes the other wins. And part of that is the changing dynamics of the electorate. And part of that is that enough people change their minds sometimes they defect in one election. Boy, I've always voted Democratic, but I really want to vote for Donald Trump in 2016. Mm -hmm. That that's where the difference comes. Um, And so when those political strategists come and they say, help us, it's really not helpful that I tell them, well, most people (laughs) are going to do X and Y. Um, They want to know, how do I get those few voters? And it's worth saying, um, well, I'm sure I know that there are people out there that consider themselves independents who you know, really inform themselves about the candidates and really pay attention and make good choices. On average, people who don't have a, a party affiliation tend, part of what people are saying when they say I'm an independent is I don't pay attention. I don't really care. It's not really interesting to me. And on average, independents are lower on all those measures, knowledge, interest, etc. Mm. So these poor political com- campaigners, right? It's the worst of all possible worlds. You need to get these people in the middle who aren't already sort of set in one place or another, and they're the hardest to reach. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I could tell them that, but I think they know that already. Yeah, yeah. Probably <laughs> not telling them anything they don't they don't already know. That they said, still should buy the book. Yeah, they should. They should. They should. And and to that end, do you think this this does come at a, at an interesting time, just beyond the fact that it's the 100 year anniversary, uh, because of the role of women in in politics, uh, not just as an electorate, but also as a candidate 
and candidates uh, uh, across the all levels of government. It does indeed. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, for sure. I sometimes wonder if the suffragists who gave so much of their time and energy to getting the right to vote for women would be surprised, horrified, glad that that gender remains so very central to our politics mm. today. Um, at minimum, it's a lot easier for me to convince people that this is something we should pay attention to. Um, it's certainly hard to argue that we should not. But here again, I think we need to check what our assumptions and what things are supported by the data. For example, we do not have a lot of analysis of how women and men vote for a woman for president because we do not have a lot of cases. Mm -hmm. But all of our analysis from Senate races, governors, House members, etc., tells us that women actually aren't particularly more likely to vote for women candidates than they are for men. It is true that women on average uh, tend to vote strongly for women candidates, but that mostly is because women on average are more democratic than men, and most of the women candidates today are Democrats. That was not true 30 years ago, uh, but since 1992 that gap has been widening, so the percentage of women Republicans candidates and office holders has remained really flat while the number of Democratic women candidates and office holders has increased. So again, this presumption that I'm just going to throw away my economic interests, right. my worldview, my concerns about abortion or whatever it might be, and just vote for that candidate because she's a woman, is there's really very little reason to expect that's going to happen. Hmm. Um, so as we're sitting in your office, I'm looking up to my right on the top of the of the bookshelf, I see a number of uh, political Barbies. Is this not what you see in all faculty offices? No, you know, I, it is uh, <laughs> Barbies of any kind, actually, I don't see very often, except at home where I have four daughters. Oh, uh, yes. So, um, so walk me through this. What am I looking at here? So uh, there's possible that Barbie did this earlier, but the earliest bar- presidential Barbie I have here on the left um, uh, is Barbie for president. That is from 1992, which would be the uh, Clinton, the first Clinton, Bill Clinton, and and uh, the first George Bush. It was a lot of firsts in yeah. 1992 <laughs> election. Uh, what I enjoy about that Barbie is she is wearing a silver bustier and a big fluffy skirt, um, red, white, and blue. It has her big blonde hair all over the place. There was not a presidential Barbie again until until 2000. And if you see on a bunch of these more recent Barbies, they all have something called the White House Project. So Mattel collaborated with a now defunct bipartisan group that was working to get women candidates for president. Uh And so I assume in part from their influence, from sort of changing norms, although 1992 was not that long ago, um, says the old person in the room. Um, (laughs) Barbie now has a suit on. She still comes with a dress because you have to wear something to the inauguration ball, mm-hmm. obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's a little bit more professional. Her hair is not exactly flowing around her the same way. She's got a more professional haircut. And in most years, the presidential Barbies have come in various races and ethnicities. Mostly that means that Mattel just changes the color of the exact same Barbie. Uh, but nonetheless, there's some effort. So these two are both 2000. In 2004, I've got a Barbie, the 2008 one. In 2012, um, you have Barbies in your house, you know, uh, she literally stands on her own. So it's a rare Barbie that that is stable. Oh, <laughs> and yes, you can yes. Stand. Yep. 
in 2016, this was the first year that they were selling a set of Barbies. So nobody can see, but there's this is all female ticket. Um, and you can get these in a very variety of, of combinations. There's Barbies with and without glasses. There's Barbies, uh, again, different combinations of, of, of racial groups, et cetera. Anyway, so that's it. And then I have a this year, this career of the year Barbie this year is a judge. So I got a judge there. And then, of course, I have Wonder Woman because. Well, yeah. Obviously. Yeah. For obvious reasons. <laughs> that's interesting that, I mean, 92, like you said, is not very long ago, but looking at that and then the 2016 versions, which we'll put photos of on online, please, um, is, uh, is really kind of a fascinating dichotomy. So just yesterday, these are the important things that scholars do. Uh, a friend of mine who's also a scholar of women in politics sent me a note that the, for the 60th anniversary of Barbie this year, they're doing a bunch of anniversary editions, and they are doing a political candidate Barbie. She looks exactly like the blue-skirted, red-jacketed one there in okay. 2016. I actually have another one of those somewhere. Um, hmm. Although it looked like, according to a friend of mine who was looking, that you could only get her in a blonde which is not great. And Mattel, if you're listening, do better. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, and it'll just be inter- I'm I'm still waiting to see if there's going to be a specific 2020 presidential Barbie and, yeah. and how our views on these things have evolved. Like, maybe Barbie could have short hair. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> which some Barbies, right? I have to say, they have a bunch of, if you haven't bought Barbies lately, a uh, lot of different sizes and, and looks in Barbie these days. So. I can... Confirm that uh, from experience. Yes. No, no need to sell me on that. If you could uh, summarize kind of the story of women voters from 1920 to 2020 or 2016, at least, um, how would you encapsulate it if it could be so encapsulated? From the very beginning, women voters have been very diverse. So in the 20s, it was the expectation of, well, all the suffragists are these sort of native-born, by which I mean white, not Native Mm. American, native-born Protestant women in the Midwest. And they're Republicans, and so women will be overwhelmingly Republican. Mm. They were a little bit more Republican, but in places where Democrats were stronger, they they were overwhelmingly Democrats. Um, When we look more closely, we see that women of different racial and ethnic identities, of different social class, of different regions, et cetera, almost always the gaps between those women, a woman who lives in Oregon and a woman who lives in Texas, is a bigger gap than any gap between women and men Hmm. in Oregon or women and men in Texas. And so um, I wish it was a stronger, just like gender is the most important thing you should know because gender is huge. (laughs) Uh, And it affects how we view candidates. It affects Mm -hmm. lots of different things. Um, But women are just as diverse as our men. And to expect them to someday rise up as a voting block and all vote a particular way, uh, I'm not in the business of predicting (laughs) things, but I'm going to predict that that's not going to happen. Yeah. Christina Wolbrecht, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the first installment of Notre Dame Stories Office Hours. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe to Notre Dame Stories wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. These podcasts are produced by the Office of Public Affairs and Communications. I'm your host, Andy Fuller. Our music is by Alex Mansour.